Hello, dearest of the dearest listeners. It's our last reading club of the year. It's Tuesday, the 14th of December. I'm Alex Hockley. I'm here with George Hoare and Philip Cunliffe as usual. And we're here to discuss Eva Luz's Cold Intimacies, The Making of Emotional Capitalism. One way to just introduce the book is that there's this structuring metaphor, a sort of dichotomy that runs throughout the book between cold and hard and warm and soft. And the book is basically about how the cold and hard penetrates the warm and soft and vice versa. Um, but lest you get too aroused, I'm going to talk a little bit about who Eva Luz, the author, is. Uh, Eva Luz was born in Morocco and then moved to France where she did her studies. Uh, she now teaches at the Hebrew University uh, in Israel. She's a sociologist, but uh, also studied uh, communication and cultural studies. Uh, she delivered the Adorno lectures at uh, the Institute for Social Research in Frankfurt. And actually, this book here is based on those lectures. It's an edited version of those lectures. So it's in three parts, but uh, they actually do form a, a cohesive whole. She's also, I mean, she's author of a number of other books, about a dozen books. Um, the first one, and actually, I think it's her first book, and one which I read way back when I was doing my master's, uh, studying the sociology of consumption. It's called Consuming the Romantic Utopia. And it's a book kind of about enchantment, about how um, people throw themselves into consumerism and how consumerism sells you uh, these fantasies and dreams. And what's interesting about this book, and she kind of refers to this or suggests it um, in, in the, throughout the book, is that this is kind of about disenchantment, about something a bit more cynical and hard uh, rather than the kind of... Uh, you know, brightly lit, uh, colorful world of consumerism. Um, and I'll get on to what exactly that, that means, and we'll discuss this as we go through. Um, so as I said, these are three lectures here. Um, and just to tell you what each uh, separate lecture or each chapter kind of refers to, the first one uh, explains how this new ethos of emotional capitalism has emerged. And according to Alouz, it emerges through a combination of the role that psychology has played in changing uh, popular conceptions of the self, the role that feminism has played in um, maybe feminizing the public sphere and also in its claims about rights and equality, and the underlying imperative of productivity and how all these things have these three elements have fused to form this emotional capitalism. The second uh, lecture is about how the ethos of self-help on the one hand and the narrative of suffering, uh, these two things seem quite opposed to one another, but how they actually flow together and that they're pretty constitutive of contemporary culture. So self-help, you know, pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps, working on yourself, and this other narrative of suffering, which is kind of about victimhood. And they seem kind of different. They seem even opposed to one another, but they kind of go together. Um, again, more on that in uh, just a bit as we go through this. And then the third uh, chapter is probably the most concrete in, insofar as it talks about a tangible, specific, concrete social sphere, which is uh, romance, dating, uh, and maybe, you know, kind of family life. And it, Eva Luz explores how romantic life has been transformed by the internet. Again, to return to that cold and hard versus warm and soft thing, it's about how the cold and hard has intruded into the world of the warm and soft but how also the warm and soft has come to shape or color uh, the cold and hard world of public life, of uh, capitalism and production. One final thing uh, about the book. Um, the book, I guess, one way to put it is uh, to talk about it in terms of rationalization. Now, what is rationalization? I'm just going to read from the book so that we maybe have this under our belts, uh, whether you've read the book or especially if you haven't, um, so we can just Phrasing, be on the same. Alex, phrasing. What, so what do you many, mean? So many matter under no. our belts, you know. Oh, so uh, yeah, oh, that's true, below the belt. Yeah, no, good, good. Um, 
yeah, just just pick me up on these as we go through because it's I'm sure it's going to be interspersed throughout. It will penetrate my thought quite deeply. Uh, phrasing, anyway, phrasing. Rationalization includes five components, says Zeluz. The calculated use of means, the use of more effective means, choosing on a rational basis, that is on the basis of knowledge and education, making general value principles guide one's life, and finally, unifying the previous four components in a rational methodological lifestyle. Now, that all sounds kind of, uh, well, very instrumental, which is what this is about. But, Ilu says, rationalization has an additional important meaning. It is the process of expansion of formal systems of knowledge, which in turn lead to an intellectualization of everyday life. Now, what does this mean? Now, she gives an example shortly after this, uh, this, this uh, section in, in uh, page 32. Um, where she talks about in relation to relationships and dating, women carefully take themselves as objects of scrutiny, control their emotions, assess choices, and choose their preferred course of action. Uh, now, you might want to uh, cast your mind back to a three articles which we did uh, a little while ago where we talked about, uh, I think it was Phil's article, which he brought one on um, dating and female dating strategy which really was about rationalization, which is this world of romance about the coup de foudre, you know, love at first sight moment, which suddenly has now been transformed into this rational, calculated thing. And again, this is where that warm and soft thing encounters that cold and hard thing. Um, and this is, again, phrasing. the thing that, that phrasing uh, that runs throughout uh, the episode. Right. Two quick things before we actually uh, begin, and I bring in Phil and George to say something other than just phrasing. Uh, we have other episodes which you might want to refer to maybe after listening to this, which touch on similar ground. Uh, we have a reading club, which we did a little bit earlier this year on the first chapter of uh, Zaretsky's Political Freud, which is about psychoanalysis and the spirit of capitalism. Uh, that book and that, uh, well, that chapter that we read is a potentially more positive reading of how psycho psychoanalysis has transformed modern culture, how psychoanalysis informed, for example, um, black liberation movements in the 1920s, um, but also about how changes in psychology can explain transformations in capitalist culture and ideology. So that's a really important touch point. We'll maybe refer back to it as we go along here today as well. Uh, another one, Calibunga series, obviously, about how hippie ethics and yuppie practice have somehow fused. Um, this is, again, kind of things which seem contradictory, uh, which don't flow together, but which act in actual fact are um, two important touchstones of contemporary capitalist culture. Uh, another one very explicitly, back to episode 50, Anna Katchin was on, uh, and we talked about modern dating and precisely this sort of aspects of, of rationalization that uh, that have transformed romance or maybe even de-romantified romance. Um, and that's really good. I just think Anna Katchin's very good and critical on this stuff. Um, so that's a good one to refer back to. Uh, and finally, uh, an episode which has just come out today, which is our, which is this, to say Tuesday, the 14th of December, which uh, is a recording of mine and George's discussion with Catherine Liu about the PMC, which was hosted by University of California, Irvine, uh, the Humanities Center there. And uh, so we've republished that as a, as a podcast, but that was done as a webinar. And in that, Catherine talked about the role that I'd divulging personal trauma plays in creating an identification with famous people or powerful people. You know, so Oprah, who's a billionaire or a millionaire, I don't know, uh, goes on about her own personal trauma and she's then seen as the same as you. And that equalizing effect that um, that kind of uh, the publicizing of intimacy has or, or the taking of intimacy into the public sphere um, is very important and something, again, we're going to talk about. 
one last thing, I'm really sorry, I'm carrying on too long. But um, before we begin, you may have seen we're carrying out a listener survey, and it's our first one. And we'd especially like to ask you Reading Club subscribers, uh, if you wouldn't mind taking five or 10 minutes to fill it out, it would be fantastic if you would. Uh, the link is available on Patreon, and it's also uh, here in the show notes to this episode. Basically, what we want to do, we want to understand uh, the politics of you, the listeners, uh, and maybe also use it as a way to put the finger in the air to understand the political climate. How have you uh, responded to the kind of changes at the end of the end of history that we discuss on this podcast? But also, we want to see how we can improve. Um, so uh, contrary to some suggestions, some of you thought that maybe we're packing it in, and that's why we're doing the survey. But that's not at all true. Uh, we just want to see how we can do what we already do and do it better. Um, and so it's things like, okay, do you think the episodes that we do are too long or too short? You know, that's something that we can change. Uh, we're not going to change our overall approach or change our politics, obviously, but um, we can do things maybe a little bit differently. Or, for example, if there are issues that we haven't discussed and you think we should be focusing on, let us know. So that's uh, all available, you know, to do on the survey. And we'd especially like to hear from you guys the Reading Club subscribers. Um, we're coming back next year with a new and improved reading list for 2022. It's going to be a little bit different, a little bit more um, serious, I guess, um, but a little bit more exciting than what we've done up till now. We're really excited about it. But again, if you think that there's something that we should be focusing on or ways that we could do this that would make the Reading Club better listening, easier listening, or however uh, you'd like to think about it, then again, let us know via the survey. So yeah, it'd be great if you fill that out. Thank you very much. Serious, serious and exciting, Alex. Serious, well, exactly. It's not You're just like... Really seriously exciting. Seriously. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, let's, turn to, let's turn to the matter at hand to this book. So um, we're going to start with something that I already referred to, which is that Illuse accounts for the emergence of emotional capitalism by referring to a confluence, and very much not a conspiracy, and this is important, but a confluence of, on the one hand, psychology and the role that psychology has played in um, corporations, in the state, and so on, and feminism, especially uh, the, the feminism of the 1970s onwards. So... I found it sort of convincing, and it you know plays into a little bit of what uh, uh, Zaretsky describes, in which we discussed in a previous reading club. But I also find it maybe too idealistic, right? That like what these guys just put these ideas out into the public sphere and it massively transforms capitalism. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think it might be useful to just start off a little bit by you know what what do we mean by emotional capitalism and what are the what are the kind of component parts. So I would I would say, and I don't think she actually defines it like this, but this is this is my my take on it that you sort of have these two different processes happening at the same time. On the one hand, you have basically what you referred to a bit already, Alex, in terms of rationalization. So basically bringing reason into love, into the management of emotions. I'm sure we're going to get onto onto that. But at the same time, you have also this idea of the emotional aspects of particularly economic life, and I think this is. You know, it's kind of like a classic, a development of some classic sociological theories, or this is the way that she she frames it, that modernity can be understood in terms of the way emotions are organized and put into economic and social um, practice. So, you know, Weber talks about the Protestant ethic and anxiety. Marx talks about alienation as the classic kind of modern emotion, that numbness. Zimmel talks about the metropolitan kind of emotion as nervousness and feeling blasé at the same time. And then Durkheim talks about solidarity in the, the sorts of social structures which, which create a feeling of likeness with, with fellow citizens. So I think what I would say is really interesting about this book is 
it kind of brings these two things together and says, well, there's always been a, a concern or an understanding of the emotional aspects of economic life. But at the same time, we are now uh, very much in a situation where our intimate relationships, you know, need to be managed, need to be rationalized. Um, and yeah, I think bringing those two things together is interesting. I mean, I can, I can, I, I sort of disagree with the emphasis that you put on that. I think that the corporate psychologists are the, are the ones who are really, who are really driving this. I thought that was a really brilliant analysis of like how these uh, kind of <clears throat> the, the corporate strategists of you know of, of 20th century american corporations particularly in, uh, required certain forms of self-understanding communication and emotional management as what defines a good worker and particularly a good manager so i think that seems to me where the the, the real thrust of the, the change comes from i would um i suppose i would make the case for feminism and i don't know i don't know why you say idealistic <clears throat> Alex, um, or what you mean by that? Because when she's talking about feminism and the the impact of the um, or the rearranging of personal life, I mean, I think it's taken as read. It's part of a package of a wider restructuring of um, gender roles. You know, coming with changing um, labor labor force structures, demographics. Um, changing position of women in the labor force and all of these things. So, I mean, I don't think it's, um, I don't think it's independent of that, but it's making a claim for how a certain set of ideas um, were influential in reshaping, in reshaping relations between men and women and that they become um, the idea of this, the therapeutic approach or certain kinds of therapeutic ideas begin to restructure private relations, intimate relations, and that this is a boost to the status of women. And she says that women, in fact, become more like men as a result in the sense that they are seeking self-control. Um, so I, I have, a, I have a, a hot take here, which is kind of on this. Um, and I've said this a few times. I don't know if I've said it on the podcast, but basically- Is it from your personal life or? No, it's, to, it's today that, so in today's society, men are more emotional than women. And what I mean by that is men are way more likely to have their behavior controlled by their emotions. If you've ever heard of the phenomenon of rage quitting, this is something where literally the, it's always a guy can't process his emotions. And there might be an explanation here, which is essentially that young men are told like, don't show your emotions. I don't understand them. Don't process them. And then therefore be dominated by them. But so they're not, they're not of, told not to show them. They're constantly told to show them. Well, the thing. maybe maybe these days, but the current generation of adults, the um, those hated millennials and Gen Xers have grown up being unable to deal with their emotions and so are dominated um, by them because of their, their gendered socialization. I would, I would take part of that. So I think, you know, it's a, I don't think you have made that claim before, actually, and I think it's a good one. Um, and I think I'd probably even agree with it. I think probably men are more emotional than women now, um, but that it is precisely because they're encouraged to be more emotional. Like nothing irritates me more than I have, and I have made this point before actually, but I'm going to make it again anyway. Nothing irritates me more than like what happened to the traditional masculine handshake. Instead, it's all fucking bros hugging each other all the time. And like loving it up and um i think that is a sign of that um enhanced emotionalism it sound like tony soprano you know whatever happened to the strong silent type <laughs> exactly exactly 
Um, well, so some of these questions about gender and the role of feminism, we're going to come back to, but let's just split these all for a second and talk about the role psychologists have played. So it's very obvious that in, in, this is the beginning of the book, but the role that psychologists have played in effectively serving capitalists, right? So they promised that if they followed their advice that uh, and implemented these new modes of a more communicative um, way of interacting within the corporation, that employees, and this applies both to managers as well as to uh, the lower ends of, uh, of the corporation, um, that they could promise higher profits, better labor relations, uh, avoid strikes, and so on. But Luz makes a claim, which is, I think, um, different, and it's something where she tries to stand out from some other critics who talk about similar things, which is that labor likes this as well, right? So it's not just um, the capitalists and the managers who benefit from this, but that that it serves or satisfies certain desires of labor. And I'm going to quote, it had the, so these sort of, uh, this transformations and uh, this new communicative capitalism where you put your, you put yourself in the, in the other person's shoes, try to think about how you come off and so on, um, that it had the appearance of being more democratic for it now made good leadership depend on personality and on the capacity to understand others rather than on innate privilege and social standing. Um, so th this is quite interesting, right? It seems that it means that workers themselves were open to this. Yeah, I though yeah, I mean I think this is one of the one of the best bits of the book. However, I would disagree with the way you presented it. I think the important word there is appearance. It had the appearance of being more democratic because it for it now made good leadership I would say appear to depend on personality. And I think this is like I think that so she she talks about um communicative competence and the importance in the kind of modern workplace of being able to um, some people call it emotional intelligence, but it's basically being able to manipulate people. Um, and so instead of giving them direct orders, instead get them to do what you um, want yeah. them to do. And I think that fit between psychology and the needs of the developing needs of the corporation is really, um, is really kind of well illustrated. One thing I would say is that if you draw this through this kind of idea, it ends up with those theorists, and I don't think this is what she intends, but this is what I took away from it. These theorists like um, uh, Habermas or Honneth who talk about recognition, it makes you realize this is like, a, it's not a political claim. It's like a management tool. So this whole kind of like, it's not about redistribution. It's about recognition. That's what we should search for in politics. Well, no, that's basically a, a management tool that people can use to kind of I don't know, to, to, you know, to appear to give, to give a kind of democratic um, aspect to, to political or corporate life. I mean, yeah, I think, I mean, I mean that's... of course, of course, someone like Habermas would say, no, that's not, you know, because it's completely dominated by instrumental motives, that it's not the kind of true communication that, that he aims for. But I agree that it ultimately, you know, it becomes so, um, it, it, there's a confluence between that and kind of contemporary capitalist culture and ideology that you think, yeah, well, you know, <laughs> yeah, you're kind of like this. This is surely just providing fodder for capitalist ideology rather than seeking some being an actual critical standpoint. Now, the, the, this is the, this thing of intimacy, right? Intimacy is meant to generate equality in the private sphere. This is what the psychologists are advising people in the family, right? Be open and honest with one another. Try to understand things from the other's point of view. Have open communication, right? So all this is meant to happen, especially in like middle class households and that this is meant to generate equality between men and women and it's also where the feminist aspect comes in too um the question the question here is does this um bringing of intimacy into 
the public sphere into the corporation, for example, of this, you know, having more honest and open communication and so on. Does it also have this egalitarian and democratizing effect that Elise seems Elise seems to suggest? Um, I don't know. I mean, I guess maybe George is onto the right path there, saying he gives an appearance of of, of dem- democracy, or maybe it's a cultural democratization, but not it's a genuine more, one. I mean, it's molded. I mean, I'd say it's certainly it's obviously molded around and expresses the needs of power and hierarchy in different contexts. Um, but I don't. It's. I think it's. Um, it's more than just a mask. I think it's genuine in the yeah. way in, you know, it's the meaningful transformation of the way in which people relate to each other in different social settings and the way in which they relate to authority and the way in which authority relates to us. So it's, um, you know, it's important. I mean, it's not to, it doesn't transform um, the reality of power structures and hierarchy and particularly um, the dynamics that are associated with capitalism. It can't overcome them, obviously. But it will change the way in which they're experienced in important ways. I'm sure that's true. Um, I, and I think her point about labor mm-hmm. kind of, um, you know, that, or not labor, I mean, as a collective actor, but certainly, you know, individual workers in the experience of working in large organizations and that they kind of elicited and reinforced this new um, corporate psychology approach. Um, I think it's, I think it's very perceptive and, um, persuasive so i mean yeah, one, way, more, one way to i'm a bit more skeptical i think it's so when she says things like communication instills techniques and mechanisms of social recognition by creating norms and techniques to accept validate and recognize the feelings of others it's i think this sort of like the further that many jobs get from production like this kind of mediation is or this kind of <clears throat> like it, it's it's an important way to um to deal with competing claims i think it's like a i think I'd, give, I'm, us, I'm give us skeptical. an example what you mean well when like hp is a firm where one can breathe a spirit of communication that's from the hp for hewlett packard um kind of own um branding i think the like a, a claim to 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 need good communication to have things communicated in a certain way which privileges um, respect or recognition. <clears throat> I mean, that's a, that is a that is a political claim in the sense of you know that's something you can demand or you can say you you want, and it's not a bad thing in and of itself necessarily. But it is if it means that that is a, <laughs> lessening your bargaining position to achieve better working conditions, for example. But, but, but I think the, the point that she's okay. making is that it does give better working conditions, right? It might not be something that workers achieve um, or, or gain leverage. You know, they don't gain more leverage, but workers buy into it because they go, well, my boss isn't whipping me anymore and giving me bans. He actually listens to my needs, right? And he tells me, you know, and we can negotiate and we can be honest and open and say, hey, we're all in a team here. Okay, it's all capitalist ideology, you might say, but the point is that this works through these 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 more democratizing forms. So, yeah, it's not class struggle, right? But the the point is that it does respond in some way to people's needs. Now, what's the imperative behind this? And I think I mean, bring in like my another question, which I had as a follow on from this, because um, Eva Lu sets it up so we can kind of do a, a more sort of imminent critique, I guess, um, which is to say that like. 
Elu says that the twin assumptions of equality and co- cooperation extend exerted new constraints. So in the public and in, in the workplace, that can't simply be equated to false consciousness, surveillance, or ideology. Which is to say that these ideas of of equality and cooperation, which start um, becoming real aspects to how people cooperate in the work or interact in the workplace. Um, both between employees, how the manager relates to to uh, their employees, how managers relate to one another, etc. Uh, that that is not just false consciousness, right? That it's not just like people having the wool pulled over their eyes. That it's not surveillance. That this isn't just some like Foucauldian way of controlling people. And that it's not just ideology either, which I guess is another way of of saying you know wool pulled over their eyes. That there's something rational to this, or maybe even something that people genuinely gain. I don't know how to. I don't know if it's yeah. about gain. I mean, it's about. I don't think that she's we'll, saying. We'll find that meaning in it, maybe. Maybe meaning, but also that it is a. It is its own thing, um, but it's not to say. I mean, I think this is. This is the way I understood what she was saying, but that it doesn't negate power, um, but rather that it isn't. It isn't simply a a prop or, like I say, a mask. Um, it is something which is unto itself. And so you do have perhaps, you know, less kind of formal and rigid relations between um, bosses and workers and between managers and employees, um, particularly perhaps in white collar, you know, middle class professional kind of workplaces, that those um, workplace relations are genuinely transformed in a particular way. Um, but it doesn't negate, you know, it doesn't mean that the uh, that there isn't still kind of uh, power being exerted in different forms and i think i think unless i miss something i mean i think she's fairly clear about that even to the fault i think of being cynical indeed about um therapy in different contexts these like twin assumptions of equality and cooperation don't pertain i mean in the workplace it is you still have hierarchical workplaces where there is some degree of competition between different different levels of those hierarchies for example so it, it's so it's it's an attempt to i mean it's an attempt to i guess rebrand hierarchy as competition and and equality which is you know it's, a, you, you can't say it's a good or a bad thing it's not a it's not a moral yeah, question I think that's right. but it's like a, it's a it's it's a it's a it's a contradictory re repackaging and that's why you know if you have a boss who tells you do this that's one thing if you have a boss who says would you mind doing this I mean, this the 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 point might be that this is more authoritarian in one sense uh, because you're trying to get people to want to 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 be the right sort of worker rather than being compelled on the the uh, pain of losing their job. To be so, I mean, it's so a good it, point it, it, made by it, G by G Jack in a different context. He's made this point. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I mean, I thought we wanted less like fewer names, like more, more, more direct speaking. But yes, I think that is a Zizekian point. So Elouz does say, I have this in my notes, I, and I, but I'm not sure exactly where in the book it is. It's, uh, it, it is in part one, though, in the first lecture, that communication serves the role of reconciling increasingly hierarchical, the increasingly hierarchical structure of the corporation, you know, thinking about like all these new middle managerial levels, which uh, if you compare it to 19th century capitalism has, capitalism has massively expanded, right? This is a bit the, the, the story of the PMC and the growth of the PMC under monopoly capitalism. So it's communication serves the role of reconciling that increasingly hierarchical structure with increasing democratization of social relations. So that's what this kind of new communicative ethic is about, according to Alouz. Uh, that and, and I think there is like that there is a genuine 
democratization of culture, right? That old forms of elitism no longer hold. And I, we can even refer back to the last reading club, or but one, I think, um, on um, the, the Hungarian Marxist, uh, Gaspar Miklas Tamás's account of how all these old kind of feudal or, or quasi-feudal remnants have fallen away, right? And so you don't have the old forms of domination, the way that you you used to, it's all genuinely democratic and egalitarian under capitalism, um, and that. But that there's also this hierarchy, and this communication is a way to uh, mediate between those. Um, I'm not sure that totally answers it, but I guess Luz is 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 cognizant of this tension. Yeah, I mean, I guess, and perhaps the form it takes in different contexts is Americanization, for instance. So in Britain, I think, you know, the experience of this will be a cultural Americanization of the workplace, right? In contrast to, say, the old kind of markers of privilege, which would be, um, you know, even up until perhaps, you know, as late as the 1980s, say, membership of certain kind of private private members clubs, um, public school tie, Oxbridge, these kinds of things, right? Um and those, I think those markers have genuinely, um, they've not fallen away and they still exert an influence, but they're, they're certainly, um, they're less influential, I think, than they were. Yeah. And also it's, um, if they are, they'll be disguised and expressed in different forms. So I think, you know, she, I think there is a, there is a real effect of what she's describing. And I think in plenty of places, it'll probably be experienced as a kind of Californication or Americanization of the workplace, particularly large, um, large corporations, multinationals, or, you know, your average kind of middle management, um, charity style, you know, kind of um, place. Yeah. So uh, let's move on to um, the question of the, well, the more gendered, a- gender aspects of it. Um, because Luz makes this point that, I mean, there's a, this analogy, right, between men and women and public and private, and how that has changed. And Elouz says that capitalism brought about a destructuring of the very gender identities it helped to establish in the first place. And so specifically, this is a capitalism, the 19th century capitalism, for example, has the public sphere as the role, the the, the place of men, that men go to work and that women are domestic and are at home, and all the sort of um, effective and um, aspects of the structuring of personality and so on, that that goes along with that, right? And so this is like a, a fundamental dividing line in modern capitalism. And that actually 20th century capitalism, especially as we go forward and even into the 20, especially into the 21st century, that these gender identities have actually melted away. Um, so I, I'm wondering like how, what's, what's going on here? Um, how, yeah, I, I'm just trying to get my head around exactly how to, how to properly conceptualize this gender dissolution that Elouz talks about. Well, she, yeah, I mean, I, I didn't read it in terms of gender identities or the argument she was making as much as the sentimentalization of the <clears throat> uh, public sphere means that you like that kind of gendered division between public and private. What do you mean sentimentalization? It's the, so uh, she says um, therapy enjoined with the language of economic accountability and with feminism, which has made emotions into micro public spheres so she's talking about how like you are now more and not to kind of preempt talking about oprah and, and all this sort of thing which i'm sure we'll come on to um like you are now able to express emotions in the public sphere and even in some cases rewarded and perhaps rewarded um quite well um for showing these emotions and for i guess trans p- 
put things which were previously private, for example, trauma, if you, in the right context, if you're able to perform this, you, you know, the, the, the rewards can be, um, there's a, more, more to put it, there's a structural incentive for people to do this. So kind of um, the, the public sphere's kind of separateness and rules of interaction, which are quote unquote male, that, that is eroded. Yeah, though I mean that, that is about gender identities, right? About the the, the, ident- the, the identity of, of male and female and how they're constructed and how those have changed, right? Um, and yeah, but I think it. But I think, I think it's, I mean, it's more about what what public and private is, and then the gender identity comes second. I would possibly suggest. Yeah, th- yeah, maybe, maybe I mean, there's maybe it's two sides of the same process. Yeah. I think she's right. I think the I think in me, you know, kind of um, to a large extent the. Um, the gender kind of division of labor and the identities that came with it, or, you know, the, the, um, the most influential set of identities that came with it and that grew out of industrial, industrial economies that those have, um, those have gone in the West, at least, um, where you have kind of large service sectors and we've, you know, we've dealt with this. Um, I mean, we've dealt with some of these claims before, both in relation to how, um, you know, say how notions of masculinity have changed, um, the rise of like uh, new types of masculinity in response to this, and also how it's experienced differently at different um, in different levels of the economic, um, uh, cl- you know, different levels of the class system. Yeah, so like I, I always think she's... about how like gay British people are, you know, and how feminized British men are, and it's because it's a very service economy. Um, and that's basically what's happened. Like, just look at the dress sense, you know, it's all kind of, um, you know, and everyone's like doing their hair and everything. it's all very, it's all very feminized. I, I was, I'm always, I was going to disagree. I was going to say the opposite, right? Cause what strikes me is that it's precisely in that era that you have the reassertion of kind of, um, very obviously outward signals of masculinity. So the beard, right. And also, um, going but, to the gym but it's and getting all, pumped, right? Yeah, but it's all no, but those things are all you know, a perfectly manicured beard, and the, the gym is yeah, all about looking right and etc. It's yeah. a, no, sure. I mean, you know, it has those kinds of narcissistic aspects for sure, but it's a it's an assertion of a particular image of masculinity, which is, yeah, uh, comp- yeah, you know, fair. I think it's effectively, but this is the point that Mark Simpson made. Um, you know, in an episode that we did a while back on um, changes in gay politics, right? It's something, it's again, it's kind of working with the body. You don't work with your body in the factory anymore, but you still have, um, you can still kind of shape your body in these new ways, right? And it's about presenting a new kind of image. Um, but it's, but it is about um, kind of exaggerating certain aspects of masculinity which before would have been assigned by the kind of work that you did or the kind of role that you had in the household or the fact that you weren't a family wage. And as these things have fallen off, like masculinity has been reshaped into and expressed in a different format. Yeah. So I think she, anyway, I think she's right. I want to talk about this kind of returning to this metaphor of, you know, cold and uh, warm, this dialectical movement really of that warm goes into cold and cold goes into warm. Uh, namely that production demands affect and affective elements while the intimate sphere is reconstructed on the model of bargaining and exchange is one of these chronologically or, and or logically prior to the other, like what comes first, because I, to put it a different way, I found 
the aspects that she describes in terms of the transformations of private life, of intimacy, and how these become increasingly rationalized. Again, we have the examples of dating and you know optimizing dating, uh, treating it like a consumer market, and so on. The, all that stuff I find very self-evident. Like it, it, you know, it's obvious if you've ever been on Tinder or whatever. Like it, it's just um, completely unavoidable. You can't ignore it. On the other hand. I just don't know how real a thing or maybe how important this communicative capitalism is, you know, because maybe this is kind of recapitulating a point that George made. Isn't it all just still mostly about hard production and domination in the workplace and all this stuff about communicative capitalism? Yeah, yeah. Maybe it's about different managerial strategies. But is it, you know, is, is it that real? But are managerial strategies yeah. a thing, right? I mean, it depends on whether or not you think they're a thing. And if you think they're a thing, then you can. You but know, they are a thing, thing, surely. They are well, like then you know. Communi- then, but that answers your question, right? But is that a material change, I guess, or is that just a kind of a, a cultural? Well, it's not change a material. That- it's not a material change in the sense that it's a new type of industrial widget, right? But it is a material change in the. No, fact no, that I mean material in the sense of a relationship, of a social relationship that has yeah, genuinely I think, changed. Well, I mean, I think at least in what she is. I mean, getting at, I think, yeah, that she does mean it as a meaningful kind of change in relations of production, not in ownership or control or access to means of production, but the way in which um, the way in which work and labor and um, production is organized. Yes. Yeah, I think there's also you can also tell a story about why these sorts of things would be more necessary. So at the same time that I think, you know, I, I, I think you are right, though, in your starting point that it seems easier to explain how like the prevalent like rationalized kind of a calculating logic of of you know <clears throat> of economic life could go into all spheres and eventually colonize those and and reduce everything to kind of to kind of a callous nexus of of interaction of various sorts but it is it is a, i think it is a more complicated story like how you like what what is it that explains the necessity or the yeah, the necessity for these kind of sorts of communicative, managerial, dot 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 sort of um, workplaces, and I think I, there I, is, a, but there is a story like that. It, it, it's required the further that advanced industrial democracies, or however you want to call them, um, find reasons and and uh, ways to to kind of to move away from production. I mean, I think it's you know there is a it's part of the ideology of capitalism in retreat from production that you need to have like these super complicated relationships within corporations where you're just kind of moving, you know, you're, you're doing things with documents and you're sending emails and, you know, tracking changes into things and all this sort of thing. Yeah. So that would be my sort of, that would be I, my, I mean, I don't, I, that's not the full story, but that would be my start. Well, I, I, I mean, it occurred to me just like listening to this is that the, the aspects of dating, right? So like the rationalization of dating, just to take that as the kind of key example, um, is something that's newer. And so it seems like, I don't mean self-evident actually, I just mean that it's an obvious example and it seems obviously true to me because it's something maybe that I've witnessed happen over the course of my life, right? Especially with the development of the internet web 2.0 and social media. Whereas the aspects of you know communicative capitalism and the role of affect uh, and the role that affect plays in workplace relationships may be something that happened earlier and therefore is something that I just take for granted and therefore I don't see it. Maybe that's why I, th- I don't think it's so convincing because I only know that world. You know, I didn't know the world of like 
the your boss you know just being so much you know especially like being middle class and working in kind of work white collar workplaces the kind of old forms of domination that used to that used to and hierarchy that used to apply in 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 corporations maybe that's it yeah one of the i think interesting parts of of the book is how she um she kind of talks about how you have this idea of emotional competence and this is she says this is basically like cultural capital for a certain group of people, those hated PMC types that one hears so much about these days. Um, and it's I like you can see how there are these domains in which emotional intelligence is important. And you can see how there's like you can see how there is a, um, a set of contexts where being an adept communicator, being able to read people, essentially being able to manipulate them. Um, this this is rewarded kind of professionally um, and, and personally. So you can sort of, you can see how, and this is, I think it's related to that kind of rationalization of, of intimate relationships and that kind of like the changes in dating that you're referring to, because it's all part of the same sort of um, set of incentives that if you're able to understand yourself and other people and their emotional states, then this gives you um, a set of tools to navigate relationships, which end up being eventually materially um, beneficial for you. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think that's right. Um, I'd want to move on to one last point from, which is referring more to section one to the first lecture, uh, which is a, a kind of a tr- troubling claim really. And I think it's correct, but I want to you know, throw this out there. Um, is that the, the therapy culture that seems to have emerged uh, is one which is more emotive and subjective, but it's also more cold and distant at the same time. And this probably applies both to the public sphere as to the private sphere, which of course, as we know, is a distinction which is no longer operative, no longer exists. But anyway, yeah, to quote directly from Eluz, um, that this emotional capitalism submits relationships to procedures of speech that aim to neutralize the emotional dynamics, right? So basically don't have, don't feel guilt, fear, uh, anger, shame, etc. So, you know, emotions are kind of, um, yeah, neutralized. But, but at the same time, it intensifies subjectivism and emotivism, making us regard our emotions as having a validity of their own by the very fact of being expressed. Again, this is like, hey, I, 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 uh, I feel this is offensive. Yeah, so, but it's not meant to be offensive. Yeah, but I feel offended. Therefore, my feelings count. Or I feel hurt by this, which is an example that Eluz gives. I feel hurt by this. And therefore, you have to take seriously the fact that that person feels hurt, even if they're they're wrong to feel hurt, right? Um, and that, that's, very, that's troubling. It's very subtle and, um, and very accurate. Um, it's precisely this, the inability... I mean, I suppose, you know, another way to perhaps make the point more bluntly would be that when it's kind of when that emotional kind of subjectivism saturates everything, then it's impossible to be meaningfully or authentically emotional. Um, But I think, no, it's spot on, essentially. I think, I mean, her formulation is subtle and accurate about this kind of perverse dynamic whereby emotions are at once... um, everywhere (laughs) yeah well privileged in terms of um feeling is privileged in terms of um what is seen to be meaningful and authentic at the same time as you have all this kind of um social distancing we could call it i guess uh as a product of these new structures of etiquette 
um, and new kind of bourgeois forms of politesse, which um, saturate um, white collar workplaces as well as kind of um, you know public culture and politics to a great degree in the Western world as well. Um, it, it, and, uh, actually, hearing is, you, yeah, he, sorry, hearing you say that reminded me of well the stuff that we discussed in relation to uh, Elizaretsky's political Freud, which is about you know the maturity ethic in mid century America, right? Which is like if you think about. 1950s American suburbia, white picket fences, and all this emotional self-management, right? And trying to keep it all repressed and whatever. And you think, ah, well, but after the 1960s revolt, after feminism, all things are much more openly emotional, right? And we're out there and we feel things and, uh, you know, uh, capitalism sells stuff based on our emotions. So, you know, it, it, it's, it's a very different world to that repressed 1950s, you know, black and white kind of image. And yet what, Phil, you've just been describing there is actually a very much still a kind of repressive, um, kind of repressive form of, of sociability to, that we have very much today, except it's not the old form of repression and the kind of maturity ethic that, that accompanied that. I guess it's one which is more, which is bringing emotions always constantly to the fore, but as a way of managing them, of discussing them, bringing them out in the open, but without ever having anything which might be disruptive, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but it's also at the same time, I think, individualizing. Like, so it's kind of it is a political strategy in that sense. Like, if you are required to um, to talk about your emotions, this is something which is sort of separating you from other people because you know those these are things which aren't kind of transferable. If you leave aside the you know solidarity might might not be an emotion or a feeling or whatever but it's like i think there no, is but a, why aren't they i mean i think you're right george it is individualizing but you know i mean if you feel anger maybe other people feel anger too why should it necessarily be no and and, and, and what you're saying actually runs counter to, to, to Eluz's account because Eluz makes the point that precisely this emotionalism is equalizing because you're all putting it out there you're on the same page um so th there is yeah but something at least something in theory the possibility and... for fellow feeling of empathy and indeed solidarity. So I think we have to be careful well, the way that different. we describe it. Yeah, that's. I think something can be equalizing and uh, dividing. They can have a number of separate, um, but but equal, <laughs> to put it that way, um, individuals. I mean, and I think that's because you're not you're not appealing to a common interest. You're appealing to a shared feeling maybe. well you're yes. not appealing to interest at all i think that's the thing yes. you know yes but so it's not structural it's like if somebody feels it at that point in time then they're part of that group if they don't yes then they're that's not. right yes but, that's but, right. But, but, okay yeah. i i agree with that uh, but i think then the, so the passion, terms are used to, so the, the term... feeling the feeling is prioritized over the over the interest or the um you know the uh question at hand right yeah and not only that but it's not individualizing it's not individualizing enough, right? Because what the the point is that you are um, kind of flattened out, and any of you, all your kind of particularities and possibility to develop your individuality yeah, are completely constrained. And, or rather, and you're well, you're or you're integrated into a particular kind of community of vulnerability, of pain, of yeah. suffering. Of it's the yeah. I mean, he meant. I mean, she makes this point about Jane Fonda and Oprah in the kind of biographies that they. Um, uh, where they discuss all of their personal struggles, you become part of that community, despite the fact that, you know, um, you will have very little, ultimately very little in common, say, with um, the billionaire celebrity chat show host, Oprah. Oprah? <laughs> Oprah. 
<laughs> well, actually, that, that all brings us very nicely onto the next point, which refers more to lecture two, which is uh, something that I already said in the introduction, uh, uh, that Luz squares this ethos of self-help, which has existed for a very long time, you know, all these self-help manuals in the United States and from the 1920s onwards, and this narrative of suffering, which is a little bit more recent, where everybody has to create for themselves a trauma narrative, everybody has to identify themselves as being sick, you know, not mentally well, and that therefore they have to go through this process and overcome it. And everybody has to test, put out in public this narrative. Now that I think we can all get our heads around. We can all see that all around us. We know what that, we know what that's talking about, right? But Luz ties it together by uh, the liberal emphasis on rights. And I found this initially perplexing, but I think it's probably quite elegant. I'm, I'm just trying to get my head around it entirely. And the way I understood it, um, how does how does this liberal emphasis on rights tie together self-help and the narrative of suffering? Those other two things are about affect um, and about individualism and rights seems about politics. And I'm not sure how those connect. The way I think I, I see it, can I just, maybe, maybe I'll way. say, it. okay, well, let me okay. say the way I think I see it and then you can <laughs> okay. disagree, um, which is that this liberal idea is that self-development is a, seen as a right. Right, so you have you should have the right to be able to uh, have you know some sense of flourishing, the, the 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 right to kind of have introspection and improve yourself. Right, um, psychologists then come in and make health and self realization the same thing. Right, so this idea of like having um, introversion and thinking about yourself and your emotions um, is tied very much to. Uh, and 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 to yeah to find realization in pu in public life is the same as being mentally healthy, which is which is difficult. Now this emphasis on everyone being healthy, mentally healthy, su suggests actually ironically that everyone's ill, right? And I think we all know this, right? The emphasis on therapy and on positive mental health means that unless you fall into this very narrow sliver of how mental health is defined, you are by default mentally ill. I mean that doesn't mean you're you know, complete, complete pathologies, but that you're, something's not right with you. Right. Are and, you and mentally ill, Alex. Yeah, we all are. I mean, I, we're going to come on to this actually, because uh, we're going to put Freud and therapy culture up against each other, but that's in a little bit. Um, yeah. I don't know. George, what would say what you wanted to say? Yeah. I, I don't think it works so much through rights as what you actually sort of said towards the end of the presentation after I <laughs> attempted to interrupt, which is that it's a redefinition of, of health and sickness. And I think she hits a nail on the head by saying that in a therapeutic culture, that health is the same thing as self-realization. So it's almost anybody who's not wholly self-realized, which is everybody is like, is sick. Is, is so that's where yeah. I think it yeah. comes and maybe then like you can say do you have a right to self-realization or to the preconditions of self-realization maybe maybe not but I think it's just a very and I think it you know I think that resonates that there is this idea that like you have to have um emotionally healthy self like helping self-caring behaviors and if you do anything that's even remotely self-destructive then you're 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 ill you're pathological but that's obviously not the way that human beings live their live their lives so i think that that kind of redefinition of health and sickness was i would say pretty successful um which starts in self-help culture as she i think correctly sort of identifies no i think that's right it's just that the idea of rights which she brings in is, is quite interesting um, because that's where the feminist aspect comes in of feminists claiming the right for equality, both in public and in private life. And that this is somehow the mechanism by which uh, mental health is recast in a way 
that everyone is seen as mentally ill because you don't have self because you're not self-realized. And that link is is kind of difficult to try to fully get my head around, I think. Yeah. So just just to to because uh, I'm aware that <clears throat> you know listeners might not have read this, but she she makes a very good analogy that like if you had this same model of health in physical health, it would be um, anybody who doesn't use the full potential of their muscles is is sick. So it's like there's just this un- incredibly high standard, and then maybe that is whether you know you have a right to um, to the full use and the full potentialization of your of your of your body and your and your mind um and then that's a kind of almost by definition unrealizable right and maybe that what what makes it a strong or a useful one politically right exactly and here's the question that i wanted to ask then that flows directly on from that which is that how does that differ from freud's understanding um we can refer back to to zaretsky's one because basically the this uh like contemporary therapy culture um stipulates this or ends up creating uh, a hard division between the healthy and the sick uh and that the health health is a goal achieved through self-improvement um and freud's understanding is actually of the normal and pathological is is sort of different in that he understands all subjects to be in some sense damaged and um contradictory and involved in repression so i think he he would on the one hand yeah i think i think there's a isn't there a a, a way of seeing this as or at least a freud's understanding is like not this division where like oh you've got this limited sliver of people who are like self-realized and happy and do all this kind of stuff that you see on instagram of like you know positive thinking and whatever um and that everyone else is like burdened by their traumas it's kind of like no we're all contradictory and in fact it's also a question about self-knowledge Right. Because I think and and Eluz makes reference to this at at some point, um, which is that basically this ideal that therapy culture has created of of, of in effect, perfect self-knowledge of being like, oh, this is how I achieve self-realization. I discuss my emotions. I'm I'm emotionally open, whatever. And now I'm kind of mentally, psychologically, you know, perfect. is completely false because though even those people are, are somehow deluding themselves. They don't truly know what they want. And actually the way that Alou spells this out specifically to, just to finish off this point is with dating where people might go through their checklist of what they want from the ideal partner. And they find that person on the internet and it turns out that they don't like them. And conversely, uh, she gives the example of someone who found their ideal partner in real life, they met them in real life and they fell in love and whatever, but she would never have included him because she didn't, he didn't fit the tick boxes, right? Because he was three years outside of her catchment, <laughs> catchment range that she had put on Tinder or, or whatever preceded it. Um, so I think that's, that's kind of interesting in a way that, you know, we can't place therapy culture at Freud's door. Well, I think, you know, one, okay. How about this as a, as a, as an explanation that essentially therapy culture and, and Freudianism have a similar sort of account of people all being, um or sort of operating like model that people are kind of damaged and and um imperfect but then what therapy culture says you should do about it is take action you know read some self-help books and 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 change your habits and change your life whereas freud is like well no what you need to do is just talk about it and turn your neuroses into everyday unhappiness so it's almost like and you're probably fucked and you're probably fucked anyway because you know 
like and especially yeah. more critical readings of Freud after Freud will you know emphasize the fact that you know under capitalism you're not going to be perfectly um uh, what's the word like suited to to living in this yeah. world you know if you if you are perfectly um adequate and um you know like fit in with the world and like and the world works with you really well then you're probably kind of fucked up because <laughs> you know you're not meant yeah. to we don't live in a world made for individuals. I mean, this is a this is a, a kind of Marxist humanist point that's made that we don't live in a world that's fit for human individuals and flourishing. And so, if you if you somehow do feel totally at home in this world, that's maybe fucked yeah. up. So, I mean, I guess then the you know self help culture is like uh, frustrated at the lack of progress in therapy in kind of Freudian sessions, and so it's like right, we need to do something about this, and. Um, make some changes <laughs> so it's like yeah don't don't accept that nothing can change need some kind of american can-do spirit and um make some positive uh, pma <laughs> yeah. positive mental attitude exactly exactly okay one last thing about freud which uh Luz makes a fascinating comparison to freud's world of it is fascinating of uh well late 19th century and the early 20th century uh and it's about class and i thought this was really sharp um namely that um freud depicts uh basically class differences with regard to emotional life and so what freud does is i mean he talks about he gives the example of uh the in the same you know kind of kind of quasi-feudal manner, you know, that you basically have the landlord's daughter and you have the caretaker's daughter. And the caretaker's daughter, uh, you know, plays with her genitals and uh, is basically doesn't have all the kind of uh, repressive bourgeois morality, you know, thrown at her. And as a consequence, she she is uh, grows up with not many neuroses and is able to function better in life. And Freud even imagines maybe she'll become an actress and then eventually become an aristocrat. And so she has a kind of more successful life. Whereas the uh, landlord's daughter has all this all this um, you know kind of bourgeois morality thrown at her. And so for her, her like early kind of infantile and adolescent sexual explorations make her feel guilty. She carries these neuroses throughout her life and she ends up kind of a spinster and alone and whatever. Uh, so basically, the, the Freud's suggestion is that actually um, that relation that the uh, working class's emotional life is far healthier than the bourgeoisie's is uh, at that time. Elouz makes the point that in under emotional capitalism from the kind of mid late 20th century onwards, in fact, the the kind of codes and things that we've been brought up to, you know, especially the like the professional managerial class have been raised to to do to 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 understand their problems and discuss their issues and whatever, um, allow people to adapt to the world much better, whereas it leaves the working class abject, effectively. I don't think that's right. I think what she her point is rather it allows them to exercise power right so it's a world that allows them to control that they can control and manipulate rather than that it is um that it is emancipatory um or that it allows them to be more um to function better well i mean that this I is the point right that, that the middle class the middle class is able to function better today according to emotional capitalism because it, it, it has the skills to deal yes. with that Right. Yes. But I think her point is, I mean, the way, at least the way I read it was that therapy um, itself has 
in the context of communicative capitalism, the role of therapy has changed. And rather than um, it has now become kind of an instrument by which the um, middle class rule or PMC kind of ethos and value rule effectively. No, but it, but also think, that like yeah. this is this world of flexibility and relationships. And if you're raised in a middle class household and maybe have go through therapy and whatever, you are able to navigate its codes. Whereas the working class is left in a much more difficult situation, which is different yeah. than the century. Um, Where therapy is something confined to the room yeah. um, with the therapist rather than something which oh. is kind of built into the functioning of interpersonal relationships, corporate hierarchy. Well, yeah, you don't need those culture. skills. You don't need those soft exactly. skills to, pr to perform in 19th century capitalism. There is one thing, though, just to make an, a, a kind of, uh, a, a, you know, to contradict that slightly, is that Freud, and I think Luz refers to this in here, I think, uh, that, you know, Freud was uh, gloomy about the fact that you know, therapy wouldn't be accessible to the majority of the working class who would have far worse neuroses, which is, which I think is, is also true. And it's also a point, um, at least, you know, as refers to Freud's day, but I guess yeah, the, the point more is that, you know, yeah, today, the to navigate this world of flexibility of communication, um, of relationships and so on, uh, you need to have certain resources. Yeah, I mean, this is this is what I said earlier. Like this communicative competence, you need to have the you need to have familiarity and skill with the the, the protocols um, of this sort of way of um, ex being comfortable expressing emotion publicly or in corporate kind of contexts. And she, you know, I think she's quite explicit about this that it, it emotions become a form of capital, like a like in the the way you have these like yeah. social capital, human capital. It's a resource. I mean, that's yeah. obviously not the not the I mean that's uh, the preferred taken, definition it's of taken capital. from it's taken from uh, so I mean it's a particular kind of sociological theory that understands capital in different contexts yeah yeah but the idea of like the link so the, I think the phrase which I do like is linguistic management of emotions that you need to be able to do this if you can't do this there are certain contexts where you're gonna come a cropper um and so there is like a you know and that's the, again these these uh, despised pmc types they're the ones who are very um who are very uh, adept, probably like a, a voberian idea like they're very adept at working out when other people can't do that and then closure i.e like uh, cutting them off from material um benefits so it's it's like it's less important that you can do it or it's equally important that you can do it and then you can recognize when other people aren't doing it and you can you can close them off it's like if you uh with cultural capital it's way more important that you dislike with music it's way more important that you dislike the low status music than that you like the right sort of music so it's more important um that you don't in <clears throat> there's some really good really interesting research on this like the highest status people are defined or are characterized not by the sort of music they like but by the sort of music that they dislike particularly heavy metal in fact um or this was the case in the 90s at least um so it's like if people can't do this this kind of linguistic management of emotions in the right way then in certain contexts people who who know how to do this can uh, can can punish and exclude them from uh, access to material resources yeah um i think that's i think that's i think that's kind of convincing um but I, yeah, and I, I guess it's not just about codes and following codes and protocols, but actually being able to, she gives the example of the, you know, the, the, the working class man, the janitor who's unable to really explain 
what the trauma he had passed through of his wife leaving him all of a sudden and his previous wife dying. Um, yeah, I thought that was weak on her part, actually, because she takes that kind of inability to be emotionally fluent as a marker of some kind of deep authenticity. Um, and no, I don't not, think she know, does. I don't think I don't think she's saying the middle class one is authentic. It's just that the middle class person is better able to navigate the contemporary world. But that the middle class person is was in her example that she gives. So she contrasts the um, the woman who's kind of pathologically jealous, the middle class academic woman who's pathologically jealous of her husband interacting with other women, versus the working class guy who's unable to account for or integrate the trauma of his wife, his first wife dying and his second wife leaving him. And the sense that comes across is that. Um, there is some kind of uh, meaning to being unable to express your feelings effectively compared to this um compared to the middle class woman who's very able to kind of eloquently describe her inner state um as a result of her upbringing which leads her to her pathological jealousy so i mean that's the way i read it it seemed to me very clear that there was kind of a, a negative polarity given to um, the middle class woman who's able to be emotionally fluent and a positive polarity given to the working class guy who's unable to fully express himself. So I thought it was, I didn't, I didn't find it very convincing this section. Yeah. Well, fair enough. I, I would want to move on though, because I think it lose in the section, the last um, lecture on dating raises this distinction, which I thought was pretty novel. And I was like, okay, let me, let me think this through a little bit more. The division between the postmodern self and the new internet self. So the postmodern self is something that we left behind. And the postmodern self is one that's kind of uh, defined by multiplicity, by being able to adapt to different contexts, um, driven by you know desire and fantasy and so on. Um, all that kind of blather of kind of proper postmodernity, which you had in kind of the 80s and 90s. Um, and where the self is, yeah, the self is multiple. It can be many different things. The internet self is something else. And this she discovers through looking at how people present on dating websites, which is that there there's meant to be this sort of core, true core of the self, which that then you have to parlay into uh, into your dating profile. Um, and so that latter one, because it's, you know, presenting effectively your personal brand on the dating website and shopping in this market of abundance. Right. You have all these different options, different people you could match up and date with, and you have to evaluate them and rank them and so on. Um, that's then something defined not by desire, but rather by sterility and cynicism, um, just pure cynical calculation. And I thought that was I thought that was pretty interesting. I thought it was very clever. And um, I mean, I, yeah, I think I'd agree. I'd say, you know, one kind of emerges out of the other, I suppose, you know, kind of desire and multiplicity obviously is so kind of exhausting and overwhelming that the that it produces, it kind of flips into sterility and cynicism. But I think it's, um, yeah, I think it's, uh, she's onto something. The hedonistic kind of, uh, the hedonism of the 80s, you know, is replaced by the, the, uh, the cynical person sitting on their own behind their screen in lockdown, um, kind of snarkily commenting subtweeting and commenting on other people's posts and anonymous trolling and all the rest of it so yeah i found it a convincing quote, account in fact quote tweeting and and just generally being just terrible the 
Um, what I would say, and this isn't really the substance of what either of the two of you were saying, but she gives a really nice um, definition of cynicism, um, which she takes from Adorno as seeing through and obeying that you do those two things at the same time. That's the classic kind of cynical yeah. orientation. And it's like, yeah, that's, I mean, that that's a, yeah, you could say that's, that's pretty widespread or certainly. Well, uh, yeah. Um, and, and to make, and to may feel that to be so. And to make a reference back to the episode we've done with Doug Lane. And actually the second part of that has just come out today, this week on the 14th of December about, you know, th- this idea of like the anti-branding types who are like, you know, Oh, don't buy into branding. They're pulling the wool over your eyes. This isn't how it really is. And it loses response and it particularly, and she takes from Zizek here, but Zizek's response, of course, is that, you know, this isn't something that people are um, being, um, uh, being fooled by, right? People know that it's all bullshit and yet you still do it, right? And that's where kind of, that's where ideology happens. That's how ideology works. Um, and that's what kind of contemporary cynical ideology is about. Um, to, uh, to, to maybe to close this out, I'm gonna, who wants to talk about the hyper-rational fool? Because this relates very closely to what we're what I've just said. Yeah, I can talk about the hyper-rational fool. It's the uh, example of, of, of too much jam is, is one way that I would put it. So the what I mean by that is that if you have um, a, a booth which has six kinds of jam, uh, if you're a jam salesman, if any of our listeners are jam entrepreneurs, then you know, listen up, this is good advice. If you have six kinds of jam, <clears throat> then 30% of people who stop by the booth will buy a jam. If you have 24 different types of jam in your booth, your jam booth, as it were, uh, only 3% of people are likely to buy any kind of jam. It's basically this idea of like, how do you choose between different alternatives? Um, and what's the role of reason? Um, and this returns to her theme of rationalization and the, the the dominance of rational legal sorts of approaches and authorities over uh, judgments of other sorts um and so she, she basically takes the example or the the character of the hyper rational fool um from a book called descartes error um which is by a uh an, <clears throat> a neurologist um called uh i can't remember uh, antonio uh that damaso I, I don't know how to pronounce that that name um anyway the point is that this um neurologist kind of has this this patient who or works with patients who've damaged their ventromedial prefrontal cortex which is the area behind the nose which apparently is the area that's critical in the pro- process of decision making um and so these people with this um certain sort of brain injury are perfectly and typically rational um but lack judgment lack criteria to make decisions so there's a kind of an anecdote of <clears throat> trying to like find a time to meet with this patient suggests the, the neurologist suggests two different dates the cal- the patient pulls out their 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 calendar and for half an hour is is enumerating arguments for and against the different the, the two different dates and eventually can't can't decide and this links to uh, another another theorist to bring in another theorist a guy called ian mcgilchrist who's also a kind of um, uh, a neurologist and his idea of the master and the emissary that you have the total dominance of like very partial sorts of rationality. So you can decide between two different options. Sorry, you can work out what the pros and cons are of two different options, but you, if there isn't a clear cost benefit, you can't, you, you're not able to take things as a whole 
you're not able to see the totality. So you can't make decisions. And there's there's no role for judgment or intuition or anything other than an extremely and increasingly narrowed down and focused um, form of of reason. Yeah. And and, I mean, to return to Weber, this is instrumental rationality in the place of value rationality, or to put it a different way, you have, it's a focus on means rather than ends. So, you know, we would defend reason, obviously, but this, the hyper-rational fool only can think of different ways of evaluating, uh, measuring, quantifying, comparing, etc. cetera, uh, i.e. I, all these means to achieve an end, but the, the end is forgotten about. What is actually the thing that you want, that you desire, that you aim for? Um, and is that a rational thing to aim for? You know, so you get constantly wrapped up in, in means, um, in measurement, in comparison. Uh, and yeah, I think that's a good description for both for contemporary dating, but also perhaps for um, a lot of kind of public debate about even about politics, where it's all about, you know, is this, is this, are the, are the means to an end the correct ones without any substantial discussion about what the ends should be about kind of what is, is it a, is it a a rational way to organize society? Um, You know, does this, is it a meaningful way? Does it uh, promote freedom? For example, you know, these discussions get put to the wayside and it's all kind of instrumentalized as a way of how do we, you know, whatever, does this promote economic growth or, you know, without the ends actually being inquired into? Yeah, it's, it's, it's the, it's a society which is able to um, quantify everything, but knows the value of, of very little because it's like, yeah, there are extremely uh, sophisticated quantification, commensurization, blah, 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 kind of techniques. But in terms of making a political judgment <laughs> between these different options, um, there's, you know, there are some things which can't be quantified or, you know, there are certain questions which like having a value on this and a value on that, which is like 45 is against 52, like you choose the 52, whatever. But outside of that, and that's exactly Weber's analysis of, um, you know, of, of capitalism, that it is, it is the sort of system which, which continually um, reduces the qualitative to the, to the quantitative and, if you're not able to to kind of to to see the contradictions that 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 creates then you know that's that's the i guess the weberian kind of analysis of rationalization that it always leads to these to these situations which are increasingly kind of ridiculous yeah very good i think i mean that's all i think all of this has been very useful to kind of get a get a better grip on what rationalization means today not this cold distant bureaucratic rationality but rationalization which is very effective you know it t- touches on the emotions uh, or works with emotions, or rather perhaps hollows out emotions. One final thing, Illuz makes a really radical claim at the end, which since reading this has been kind of on my mind, um, and we should discuss this really briefly just to close this out. Um, Illuz suggests that effectively the capitalist ideology no longer works, um, that we've all become too cynical, right? That we're all just hyper-rational fools um, calculating in the market, but that we don't really have, ever believe in it. We just have to play the game. This is maybe to make reference to Squid Game. That's what you have. You know, everyone knows that this is bullshit, but fuck it. Might as well try to win the game rather than lose the game, right? Um, no one really believes in the narratives and the stories being told um, in public about what the meaning of the nation is or about what the greater goal of society is. No, we know it's all a war of all against all, but we have to participate nevertheless. Elude seems to suggest that this cynicism means that we no longer gain pleasure from participating in ideology. Um, and she makes this re- in reference to dating, obviously, but you could 
apply that to consumerism as well, where maybe we're not even buying these dreams anymore that consumption offers. We're completely cynical about it. Um, there, there is no last utopia to make reference to something that Phil talked about on a recent episode of consumerism as the last utopia. Um, maybe we don't even have that anymore. Capitalist ideology no longer functions and no longer interpolates subjects into sort of, uh, well, it's somehow enjoying and participating, um, you know, with, with desire in, in capitalism. But how would we know, right? I mean, how would we know that um, whether or not it was capitalism that people were actually buying into or not? You know, if you take the kind of the old Viberian thing, it's um, godliness, right, and virtue and prim, prim but that, morality but those, in but the those service were, of entering yeah. heaven. Or nationalism fact, or whatever. Yeah, so, I mean, but the same thing, right? So, I mean, people, you know, kind of... Um, People are buying into all sorts of different things. I mean, you know, the PMC, it'll be very hard to find a PM, member of the PMC who would say, describe themselves as uh, pro-capitalist, right? But it, it seems to me, at least, you know, many of their kind, many of the positions and policies they support seem de facto um, pro-capitalist. So I don't, you know, how would we know, how would we know the difference in what Eluz was saying? That's not clear to me. It's kind of attempted, it's an alluring thesis that we've somehow kind of broken through some outer limit and that the world is so kind of so topsy-turvy and strange um that it doesn't fit any kind of meaningful conventional category inherited from modern sociology but on the other hand how would we know that people don't buy into capitalism given the fact that you know from the start it was always predicated on the idea that when people were buying into capitalism they thought they were buying into something else sure sure but now they don't believe they're buying into something else so you just maybe have naked capitalism i guess that would be i guess what Eluz might be suggesting suggesting that it's purely cynical but because there is no alternative and we don't believe even and we're cynical even about our own ability to transcend it we have nothing else to do than participate Except, you know, it would always fall to the counter claim that the, you know, it's always the cynic, those who are cynical, who are the most kind of self-deceiving. Um, which is, which so, is Zizek's point. Cynicism is the form that modern ideology takes. You don't yeah. believe in it and yet you still participate. So, so she would, you know, so she would kind of also fall to that, um, to that critical point as well. Yeah, perhaps. Um, Okay, I think this is really interesting, and maybe we should take this up uh, at a later date, but I thought that was a very fascinating um, way to end this. Um, I hope you enjoyed it, listener. Uh, if you didn't, and if you did, or if you think we could do things differently, whatever, let us know, uh, fill out the survey. We'd love to hear from you and also get to know you better what you're thinking about uh, the end of the end of history, effectively. Um, but that's it uh, from us for now. Uh, we'll see you in the new year. We'll be out with a big reading list. Uh, very happy to bring you this. Uh, that'll be out, I guess, kind of in the early days of January. Um, and we hope you'll join us for it and tell your friends if they want to join in as well. All right. See you later. Bye-bye. Have a happy uh, Christmas and happy new year and all the rest of that. Bye-bye. More science. Okay, I will. I will reference page numbers when I make my next. No, point. I mean, no one's. <laughs>
why the stupid dichotomy anyway he's very look you got to accept he's very pissed off at the pmc and he takes it out on us when he should be taking he should be like fucking if he was in america he'd be shooting up his workplace but instead like he just gives <laughs> us this shit yeah <laughs> And you're saying that it would be better if I was shooting on my workplace. <laughs> if I Externalize. Yeah. Also working from home, it would be a short spree. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's dark. Um, okay. 